Uh, obviously, that's a very tough question and probably the question to ask to the people who are close around me. They, 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 they maybe might know better than I, I actually do. Somehow, I think I'm a yeah, quite relaxed person, but uh, with always uh, a clear uh, goal in my mind. And he's always asking, he knows more behind the scenes stuff than I do. And I'm there, he'll send me a text midweek saying, oh, have you just seen who's moved where and who's been testing where and that someone's been driving on a cart track and they're like, oh, what? what? <laughs> so he's a total fan then. Yeah, yeah, total fanboy. <laughs> but that's, that's great, that's great for you. Welcome everyone to WRC Backstories, our exclusive WRC podcast presented by Bex Williams. It's that time. We are ready to plunge into another edition of the WRC Backstories podcast. Welcome along, everyone. I hope you're keeping well and happy wherever you are around the world. It's Tech Month on WRC.com right now, presented by Wolf Lubricants. And we've been learning all sorts of wonders with regard to modern day rally car technology. Quite frankly, I'll be disappointed if you all haven't built a world rally car in your spare time with all the information that's been pumped out. In keeping with the tech theme, we've decided that now was the time to talk to some of the faces behind the scenes who are critical to the championship, but are not widely covered in terms of media. In fact, they shy away from it. Secrecy is key in the engineering world of the WRC, and awkward questions are largely avoided. And sometimes any questions are avoided. For this podcast, we head right to the top of the tree in terms of engineering prowess and chat with a man who has made his way through the ranks to achieve the title of technical director at the Toyota Gazoo racing team. Tom Fowler began his professional career in motorsport 15 years ago. But how did he get to where he is now and what has he learnt along the way? It's time to find out. We are continuing to get to know the service park of the WRC and as I mentioned at the start of this series of podcasts it's not just about the competitors it's about the wider field and the people who make up the World Rally Championship and this time around we're turning to engineering we're turning to the technical director of the Toyota team and that is Tom Fowler who joins me on the line now from Finland how are you Tom? Uh, I'm very well thank you. Good. Um, Enjoying some nice, nice sunny weather this week. Yeah, I hear it's uh, almost 30 degrees in Finland. Is that correct? Or am I right? You, you are correct. It's it's getting that, that way, yes. Oh, I'd love to be there in those kind of conditions now because it's raining here in Wales, which uh, is pretty standard, quite frankly. Uh, how have you been during this entire coronavirus time? It's weird times we're living in and some people are working, some people aren't. What's been happening with you? Yeah, so um, personally, I've been I've been pretty busy um, wor- working from home uh, as per the official guidelines. Um, the whole team's been been working that way, so we we very quickly found a way to get everybody up and running with the uh, IT and equipment they need to work from home from a office-based staff point of view. So uh, we've been continuing our design development and. Uh, all the technical work that we normally do between rallies. Um, and from a kind of workshop point of view, the hands-on guys, um, we've been able to do some uh, social distance-based 
work with some members of the workshop coming in in and out but uh, obviously much slower progress than normal and um, yeah difficult times. So you're very au fait with doing everything online now then zoom chats or teams or whatever you're very much kind of technically across that kind of thing. Yeah, we, we do quite a lot of online meetings anyhow because we have very international business to cover. So it's it's nothing new. But I think maybe the new thing is just uh, everyone uses a different program to get there. So you're forever hunting around which 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 uh, format everyone's using. But uh, now I think I've got pretty much every possibility loaded in my laptop. So we're OK. And are you a disciplined home worker or do you kind of just rock in at 9 a.m. in your PJs? Actually, I think the the biggest difficulty of working from home is is stopping work because um, everybody who uh, who we deal with is in kind of the same position as I am, and uh, there's no there's no start of the day or end of the day, so it, everyone's free to kind of just uh, communicate and set up meetings and send emails at any time of the day. So coming out of the office uh, at kind of a reasonable time that the family will accept is uh, maybe the most difficult part. (laughs) This is very true. Now, we are trying to find out a bit more about you, about you as a person, how you started out, what you were like in school, all the rest of it. But before we get to that and before we get to how you got to where you are now, I want you to try and describe yourself in three words. Wow. We're using you, three you, words. You they dropped that one to in. Each other. <laughs> it is a bit of a boom, mic drop moment. I think um, motivated. Yeah. Passionate. And technical. You are extremely motivated. And I guess being and working in this sport and working your way up through this sport, that's got to be one of the key things. But when you look back, Tom, and you know all you've achieved, which has been you know a fantastic amount so far, and you're right in the kind of prime of your career. When you look back to when you were younger, when you were in school, what kind of aspirations did you have then? Uh, well, actually, in school time, things were, I'd say, um, a little bit different. Maybe from having the the same three words were still there, but uh, um, it, I think I uh, took quite a long time to to work out exactly what it was I wanted to do I think some people know exactly what they want already when they're very young and or some people's families drive them towards a certain direction but for a long time I was more more open um, doing my studies in a like a wider field and uh, I was very interested in sport from a young age and uh taking part in sport as well as learning about the different aspects of uh, it from a education point of view so um, yeah when I was in school I was mostly doing sport and maybe not putting my full attention to the to the work side but luckily managed to get through with the kind of like minimum. Are you going to tell me now that you're a champion rugby player, football player or hurdler or something? What kind of sport was it that you were focused on or was it just general? Um, Well, it started off very general. Um, I went to a school that was very uh, heavily uh, into the sporting side, so you didn't have any choice about it. But for me, that was fine. So I was I was doing rugby, cricket, hockey, football, everything. We uh, you, you had to have a go at everything. So uh, that was fine for me because I enjoyed that. And uh, but then a little bit later on, I I started doing some some cycling, and 
started racing on bikes and that's a bit where the kind of technical and sports start side started mixing for the first time because you have to do the kind of the technical side of preparing your your bike for races and so on and I was interested in that in the same way I was interested in in racing and uh, had some success in that as a teenager and early 20s and uh, yeah was was pretty um, pretty reasonable at it so that was going pretty good and then uh, it was during that time when I decided that uh, I, I would go towards an engineering degree um, and the engineering degree was uh, pretty intensive work-wise and my uh, sporting performance was kind of on a opposite trend line to my <laughs> to my to my working hours for university so uh the results weren't as good as I hoped, so I decided to concentrate on engineering, which turned out to be maybe the best decision. <laughs> yeah, well, considering where you are now, absolutely it did. But so generally in school, when it when it came to your subjects, obviously if you're going into engineering, you've got a strong maths brain about you. Were there any subjects that you were kind of not so good at, maybe? Did you yeah, fail that... in anything at all, or are you just a, a brilliant overachiever? Yeah, I think my one of my... Um proudest moments is probably my I, I did get a U uh, in um, this is probably quite bad to mention but anyhow uh, it was in religious studies and um, I just um, basically didn't do anything at all because it, I couldn't find any interest in it and it, my, my paper was unmarkable at GCSE level but it's Ooh, that's bad Tom that's it's bad. bad it's bad yes but you it, it turned out you needed to be able to quote things from the bible and I hadn't really learned them so that it, it was inevitable really but mm. um, from a maths point of view uh, quite good really because I, I I had that kind of a brain so it was able to just do the maths without um, too much thinking about it. But uh, languages, languages were difficult for me. So uh, um, I, I got through, I got reasonable results in, in, in those things, but uh, definitely didn't come easily. I'll share a secret with you. I also got a U at GCSE and that was for German, the language. Um, because as soon as I realised that we weren't going on a school trip to Germany, I lost all interest in the language. And the only thing I think I ended up writing was Versprung durch Technik and Ich liebe Kuchen, which is I like cake or I love cake. And that really didn't get me through. It didn't really pass any muster with the exam board, unfortunately. So they gave me a big fat U. So we well, you know, were kind the, of friends uh, there. The first one is good for your current career, so... But... <laughs> yeah, the second one, maybe not so much. Talk to me then about being in university. It, you said it was intense and doing a degree obviously is. What, what did you walk away with from uni? Um, so I, I, I studied uh, automotive engineering um, at Oxford Brooks and uh, uh, became a Bachelor of Engineering. Um, and it's it's called automotive engineering, but it's effectively what people would know as mechanical engineering, but with a little bit extra stuff that's uh, targeted towards towards uh, the automotive industry. It was quite an early kind of course for that had specifics about uh, the automotive side. Um, and Oxford Brooks has been kind of uh, one of the leaders in that kind of a course. And I think uh, nowadays they're very well uh, renowned and respected for where that course is today. It's um, 
it was a little bit more basic uh, well not basic in terms of the obviously it was difficult but um basic in terms of the facilities and everything i know now they've expanded and uh, there's some it's it's really good to have this kind of uh, course that's targeted towards people's interest in the automotive engineering and motorsport yeah i mean i and for you it, there's so many people out there that that do degrees and walk away and do something completely unrelated to the gr- degree that they have done so many of my friends were the same i've moved into something where i am using what i learned and you absolutely are when you were doing your degree what did you imagine would come of you after it had finished what was your vision of a career moving forward well that that came actually quite um that became quite clear um quite early in in being at university because uh in parallel to that uh, i'd always been interested in in motorsport in general um along with the general sporting interest uh from a spectator point of view uh i followed all different types of of motorsport and been interested in it and as a um as a kid we would go and see rally gb um with my friends and family and stuff like that so there was already an interest in rally and uh, it was around late late teens and um, beginning of uh going to university that uh my interest in in rally was kind of getting a, a bit higher and um well, i think one of the important things which i i did which helped a lot was to to volunteer to to help out with uh anybody in motor clubs doing um their own their own rally and be a mechanic or help out however i could um as a, as a as a hobby on the weekend yeah. and i did that uh before university and all through university and um, being involved in the kind of uh, British rally scene um, to some different levels over the time uh, was really, I started to realise that uh, and now I know what I want to do. I, w- I want to be able to make a living from from attending this kind of events. And yeah, that's really where it started. So. I knew that when I finished university, I would be applying to uh, rally preparation companies and engineering firms that were involved in rally. And that's what I did. What I mean, it must have been a, a varied array of cars you were working on back in that day then. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, it was a very, yeah, a, a big variety and definitely a uh, a much lower quality level than than what we deal with now. I think my 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 first dealings with when I managed to actually get to see firsthand a a world rally car was um, um, it was quite a bit different to what I've been used to. But I think that's the that's the thing which um, which is important for for younger people who are interested in engineering is to really like get involved in in any form of motorsport or even any form of uh, automotive um, work that you can as early as you can mm. because no matter how technically advanced it may or may not be just learning the basics of uh, what the tools are and how a car is generally laid out and taking things to pieces and making a mistake and not being able to put them back together again it stays with you and you learn really fundamental things that uh, Maybe maybe even some some older engineers never go to the 
the point of getting their hands dirty and really being involved. And I think that that's a shame. Yeah, well, we'll come back to that a little bit later on, actually, about getting your hands dirty. So you were doing that. You were giving your time up free of charge to, to kind of learn your trade and, and discover how you could move on and, and get into where you are now. You were applying to, to places. How high up on the list was, was M Sport? Because that is my first memory of you, obviously, is, is of working at M Sport. Where was your, your first big place that you worked? Was it there or was there somewhere else first? Uh, yeah, it was it was M Sport. And um, I, I made I applications. My, my main two applications that I was hoping for was, uh, was M Sport and, and ProDrive at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously Oxford Brooks University is very close to the uh, the former ProDrive headquarters, so yeah. I used to drive drive past it on quite a regular basis. And um, I'd be, actually been to M Sport um, a few times before, um, working uh, as a mechanic on the Malcolm Wilson Rally for one of the competitors there. So I'd been to Malcolm's facility before, and obviously know about M Sport from from the from the television, but actually having visited the the workshop for scrutineering of the Malcolm Wilson rally and having visited ProDrive, you know, these places were incredible facilities. Yeah. And uh, so those were the number one and number two on my, my application list. I won't say in which order. (laughs) um, uh, And then also um, a number of other places that were, let's say, uh, suppliers of, uh, suppliers associated to those companies or uh, this kind of thing but I was really hoping that that I would get the chance to work in in one of those two places and uh, the kind of uh, suppliers were a bit of a backup backup plan to keep my mum happy <laughs> of course you've got to keep your mum happy I really want to know who interviewed you at M Sport oh well that this is quite a, an interesting story or an incredible story so um I I made the application to to M Sport and I don't remember the timing but I didn't hear anything from from anyone for for some but I'd done them a long time in advance before I'd even finished university I thought mm-hmm. I send the I send these out early and try and get a, ahead of the rush after our course finishes and um, so I didn't hear anything for a while but then I just finished university and. Uh, got a message from from M Sport that they they'd like me to come for an interview and um, I went there and the original applic- or the original discussion to go there was to discuss with uh, I'm I'm sure you know uh, Chris Williams and Mike Stewart yes. from M Sport yeah so um, they'd asked asked to go and speak with them and it was about uh, the customer program which they were building at that time for group n with the group n fiesta so that was the original reason to go and uh, so i spoke with mike and i spoke with chris at that at that time and then um mike uh stewart said to me um um uh, would you like to meet christian lorio he's the technical director obviously i knew who christian lorio was and um because uh, he, he might be interested for you to do some work at some point if you if you take a job here or whatever. So I said, yeah, that'd be great. But like you know, Christian, he's sort of flying around everywhere all the time. Flamboyant Belgian, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I waited for um quite many hours outside of his office, 
um, with the kind of like hope to speak with him. And he flew in and he flew out and I thought it was going to happen and it didn't. And meanwhile, I was kind of getting sweatier and sweatier because, you know, this is like the moment of a lifetime sort of thing. Or maybe. And uh, eventually I uh, I caught some time with Christian and uh, we chatted various things. And anyhow, um, I, uh, I ended up accepting a job dead as per the original remit of working with the, uh, the customer group end program. And uh, the timing was pretty good because it was the time when uh, there was a develop, big development program going on for Christian and the rest of the team for the 06, 06 Focus, uh, the new shape Focus that was coming. And uh, they were short of hands to, to get the car done on time. And I was kind of whipped away from the Group N program to help with Christian's team. And that's really where it went from, from the World Rally side. It's an incredible opportunity, you know, straight away from university to be working for one of the largest teams within the World Rally Championship during such an exciting period within in terms of technical development, but also in terms of competition as well. So when you were first in the team, it would have been Marcus Gronholm, Miko Hevenen? Uh Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, when I was first there, um, it was... Um, it was Tony Gardemeister and Roman oh, Cresta yeah, who were who were driving. Um, but at that time, I, w- I wasn't I wasn't involved in in the rally team, so I didn't see so much that side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working in the development, design, and tests um, during the time when when those two were driving. But yeah, the first let's say proper competition year where I was involved was was Mikko and Marcus. I mean, two Finnish drivers and Marcus Grolnholm already, you know, a world champion by that point. Uh, what was it like? Was it was it intimidating in any way, Tom, or was it not like that? Um, I'd like to say no, but I think uh, well, at that time it was uh, obviously straight from university and things were going very quickly and being asked to to do this and and that all the time, different things that I had never done before or didn't know so much about and but never wanted to say so so always said yes to everything <laughs> and um it was yeah I mean I, I remember being very nervous and quite scared of making a mistake so it it was it was uh, intimidating from that from from my own pressure side of things but in terms of from the from the drivers um not so much now I, yeah I remember fondly the days when you were engineering for Miko Hevenen, Tim, it was always Tim and Tom, Tim Jackson, who's the test engineer still for M Sport, was with Yari Matty, I believe. Uh, and I remember the, the great dynamic that you all had together and the great relationships you had with the drivers. Was it a happy period for you? Yeah, it was. It was, it was I think the, the timing of, 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 joining M Sport myself and uh, the other engineers and technicians around at the time, along with uh, when Miko and Marcus came on board, the dynamic came together very well. I mean, uh, I was I was working with Miko as, and it was my first engineering job for World Rally Car and Miko was a young driver coming and then there was Marcus who was the already world champion uh, who was the number one driver who had a, another engineer who was 
um, much more experienced than myself, obviously, at that moment. Mm. And uh, being able, from my, from my own point of view, to be able to learn from the other engineers and learn from what they were doing with Marcus and what Marcus was feeding back was great for me, but I think it was also good for Miko as well at the time. And as I mentioned, there was such success in that period with the manufacturers' titles won and the elation that surrounded the team. I, you know, I, I have such fond memories of it all. What was it like to be part of the team during that intensely successful period? Uh, it was it was it was really good. It's difficult to put to put a word to put words onto it, but um, it was um, working with with Miko. Uh, we had a very clear target that uh, we were going to the rallies to get as many manufacturer points as possible, and 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 Marcus was a little bit more off the leash to to try to win as many rallies as possible for for his own drivers' title. So we. My, from our side with myself and Mika we had a very clear target at that time and obviously everyone knows knows Marcus Gronholm he's a very nice guy and great attitude so to do that work for the team and for him was was very rewarding. Mm. Now I seem to remember that Miko had um, a special nickname for you. <laughs> he did. <laughs> Would you like to share the nickname with the group? Well, he's had a few over the years, but I think I know the one you're talking about, which is um, uh, Mr. Simple. Yes, Mr. Simple. That is indeed the one, which, you know, for, for, your, for your engineer, it sounds like, well, it's a bit of a diss, really, isn't it? Why did he call you Mr. Simple? Um, well, it, I don't remember exactly the details, but I think I had a habit of saying when he asked something of saying, uh, yes, we can do that. It's simple or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and he kind of started to always uh, always reply with the same thing, which is um, well, it, it's good, it's simple, so even you can do it. Um, and I think this is where it came from. But then, uh, if there was ever any mistakes made, then it would obviously be commented that maybe this wasn't so simple for you. <laughs> ah, he was always the charmer. So that 2006 year, I'm, I'm stretching my brain here, Tom. So bear with me. That was the year of his first WRC win as well, yes, in Australia. Uh, in Australia, yes. Yeah. Well, that and your first WRC win then, effectively. Um, well, it's um, you could say so, but it wasn't quite as simple as that because. Uh, <laughs> oh, the word simple again, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't quite as simple as that. But uh, at that moment, uh, Rally Australia 2006. So um, I was I was with Miko as, as his uh, what you might call. Uh, a sub engineer or backup engineer or something like that so I was working um, for him but uh, at that moment uh, I hadn't been fully signed off as a as a solo engineer for a work for the works cars so there was another engineer um, working with Miko at that time as the let's say the main engineer and I was helping with the car so it's not quite not quite true to say it's my first one Okay, so when was your first one then? When would you class as your first um, one when you were solo? I, I I think it was Norway, 2007. So, yeah, the very next year. And that was a great rally as well. So much snow. Yeah. Great it was, battle. It was, it, I remember it was a great battle, but uh, I, I said before that how everyone knows how nice guy Marcus is, but I can remember he wasn't so happy with that. 
<laughs> but a great one to have on your um, CV, definitely. How many wins would... Do you count them? Like uh, a driver would? Well, no, I mean... No, not personally. I think uh, for a while I was I was kind of keeping a mental track about wins and podiums and how many rallies I've been to and things like that. But after a while, it gets it gets out of control. So, no, personally not. And um, I think it's maybe better not to do it that way because the team that supports the driver is, uh, you know, you you see there's there's a lot of people that's needed to get the job done. So yeah. Um, I think it's a win for the engineer on a car, even when their teammate wins, because it's um, there's so much that has to be shared and done uh, together that uh, any win in the team is a win for everybody, really. Yeah, of course. I understand that. Talk to me about the years when we saw the incredible battles between Miko Heaven and Sebastian Loeb, because it got so close for Miko to winning the championship on a number of occasions, and on one particular occasion, tantalisingly close. When you look back at that period, is there any frustration at looking back at it, thinking, oh, we didn't, you know, we didn't quite seal it? Or do you look back at it a different way? I think there, there is the, the one-pointer, uh, which I think is the one you're referring to, um, where we lost by one point. I think that yeah. def definitely holds some some frustration. Um, it was it was still a very enjoyable time because an intense battle um, at every rally and and over the whole season to come down to a very close finish is it's still pleasurable to be involved in it. Okay, it doesn't feel so good immediately, but when you look back on it, um, I think in general um, fighting against the most successful rally driver of all time for so many years and coming so close you have to afterwards think that the, that was that was pretty good in the end <laughs> do you know Yama Leitinen said a very very similar thing um on the podcast before last when we talked to him about it you know it, it to to lose to Sebastian Loeb if, if it's ever going to be anyone out there any driver out there to come as close to then then it's him I mean it was such an incredible time and that event where you know it did go down to the wire and it was just one point you really did kind of feel for everyone involved because you know for a lot of people who watch rally who tune in maybe occasionally they don't see the amount of work that you guys are putting in not just on the events but off the events as well it's it's a 24 7 thing you know it starts as soon as we finish in the previous year for the next season it's it's a constant isn't it there's no real escape for you guys there's no let up yeah it's it's i i think um i quite often get the comment from from many people over the years or the, the, or the question that well, what do you do between rallies <laughs> sort of thing um and it's a genuine question from many people that that don't have the 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 uh you know the the general insight into what wrc or motorsport is in general to know what we need to do in between but yeah it's it's a common misconception that we we do all our work during the rally week but um the rally weeks are intense in terms of how long you have to spend in the service park and making very quick decisions and working um very quickly at times but i think the the hardest work is done in between because we have to be ready when we go there and uh, and then just execute what we planned yeah 
let's go back then to to M Sport and you leaving M Sport because you disappeared, but you disappeared from motorsport, from my memory, Tom. Where did you that, go? That is that is true. Um, and why did you go? Oh, that, that's maybe a difficult question. Um, no, it's not a difficult question, really. Uh, I think I, I spent I spent all that time uh, working working with Miko, and that was like you say, incredible times. And then I um, I did a couple more years working with uh, with uh, Petter and then the young Thierry in the Qatar team, and it was. Um, it was quite difficult times at that at that moment, and I I really wanted to uh, to move forwards myself. I think at mm. that time, and uh, it was looking difficult to do that in the in the situation I was in because, um, I mean, like the very guy who gave me the job, or one of the guys who gave me the job, Christian. You know, he's he's part of the furniture in M Sport, and below him there's other people that are part of the furniture. So. To move anywhere in that situation was quite quite difficult, and I felt that that's something that I wanted to do. So, um, I I decided that a move sideways at that moment uh, to do something else for a while while I recharged to find the next direction would was the best the best choice at that time, rather than just continuing to let's say rerun the same show. Yeah, you kind of you needed to maybe reevaluate and plan the next step. So, so when you moved sideways, tell us what you did. Uh, so I, I was um, a system engineer for a for a nuclear facility. <laughs> That's a very different move. <laughs> it it is it is very different. Uh, it was actually quite interesting and beneficial as it turned out afterwards, because. <laughs> Please don't um, tell me we're moving into nuclear energy, Tom. <laughs> no, 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 we're not. But just from a like kind of pers- more from a perspective point of view, because um, uh, when you when you work in a in a rally team, you have you know every single person that you work with. It's although the teams are relatively big, you you know everyone face to face, and you you know their character and their values, and um, you work together on a daily basis as a team. And then you go to an organization with maybe. 10,000 or more employees and nobody really knows anybody and it's all about paperwork and and you, you saw a very different side of things and uh, maybe start to realize the benefits of, of working in a in a smaller fast-moving organization and how you could do things better when you get the chance to go back to that scenario so it was it was interesting but maybe not for the right reasons. And you did get a chance to move back into that scenario then when the Toyota team was formed and Yamo Leitonen came a-looking for all the best people in town. And I believe he came and knocked on your door. Uh, yeah, that was... Um, it was it was um, Yamo and uh, obviously through Miko um, who, who knew who I was, uh, which was the first important part and had recognized that maybe I was somehow useful and <laughs> even if you were Mr. Simple, <laughs> even if I was Mr. Simple. So they, they, they kind of contradicted their own nickname in the end, which is good. Um, but that must be very yeah. satisfying for you, <laughs> but it, it was a bit of a mystical start because, um, it, 
everything was like top secret at that time. So there was no, there was no kind of like, um, would you like to become involved in this project? It was more like, would you like to go somewhere and discuss with someone about something that might be good up your street, what you might know about? Crikey. Kind of a start. <laughs> Things got a bit clearer towards the moment where the kind of introductions first happened. But uh, yeah, it started off a bit as a mystery. And you were ready at that point to 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 go headfirst into this mystery and to come back into the motorsport world. Yeah, I was more than ready. Um, I, I I'd I'd gone almost gone a little bit back to university times because uh, okay, not from uh, working on people's random cars, but uh, um, there's quite a lot of people around who have uh, world rally cars or similar machinery, and I've been doing a little bit of work from from home. Um, helping people out with the the side of it that I could do from a laptop, let's say. Um, Tom Fowler's um, technical garage was set up, was it? Uh, yeah, something like that, but more, more, more for free than anything else. But yeah, so, um, and that's, you know, I was, I was more than ready is the answer to the question. <laughs> Which is a good thing, you know, that, that project, as although secretive for you at first, when it was released, everyone was very excited about, you know, the prospect of, a, of another manufacturer coming into the World Rally Championship. But at, at, at first, it, it seemed like the project was taking a little bit of a battering from some people in the media who didn't think it was going to be a success because you you started with a target which was maybe 18 months in the distance so it was a very quick turnaround and many people didn't think it could be achieved what did you think about that kind of attitude and did it fuel you to to be successful uh yeah it was it was a little bit difficult to listen and read some of the stuff that was being said and I think the 18 months is uh, 18 months is actually the time from when Yamo first contacted me mystically to when we were uh, packing the truck for Monte Carlo. So um, it was more like 15 months that was the actual like working time to get ready um, because obviously getting getting from the mystical phase to the actual doing some engineering phase took a little bit of time. Yeah. Um, and once we got started, um, we knew that it was a difficult challenge to, to be ready in that short time, particularly considering the regulation change that was happening at that moment from from 16 into 17. So we were designing the new specification car for 17, which no one had ever worked to those regulations before. So I think um, in some ways, the maybe the the media were right to be uh, skeptical about is it possible because it w- it was a difficult challenge but yeah. the pe- the people inside of the organization we didn't really want to listen to um to that because um that was it was our job to succeed so we had to shut that out and just um almost use it to um to fuel us to move as quickly and as professionally forwards as possible and make sure that uh, come Monte Carlo uh, everyone was um, let's say saying fair play uh, I was wrong they did it. (laughs) 
it must have been a stressful time to to achieve what you had achieved or uh, looking into that 18th month 18 month window thinking we have to create as you say a, a brand new car effectively new regulations have come out and you're starting from scratch absolute scratch how how intense was that period for you guys i mean are we talking about working insane hours every day for that many months yeah it was um i think i think actually that the reason that a lot of us thought that it was possible in the time frame is because we didn't know what we knew now so um <laughs> saying saying yes to the time frame at that moment although there was no choice it was either do it or don't do it so you have to take that into account but yeah knowing what we know now i think uh, you wouldn't go into that time frame if you can possibly avoid it because yeah the the time the time frame meant that the work level was it was very intense we were um i would say that we were we were doing something every single day between the day that we started and the day that we went to the start ramp in monte carlo um so yeah, and the, the hours were very long, but it was it was a um, it was a good a good time in terms of the team motivation and team teamwork together to to get it done because um, this kind of period of time is never going to be it's not going to be lovely every day. It's obviously there is exciting days and there is interesting days and there's a lot of those, but there's also days where you wake up and think there's just too many problems today how are we going to deal with this but luckily there was always somebody around you that would say look hang on it's not that bad we can we can do this way or we can solve this problem and we needed that between us that there was always somebody that was on a high while someone else was on a low and that was really how we got how we got through it and you know you'll you'll take incredible memories away from that time because it was such an intense period in the build-up to to launching into the championship and getting success quite quickly because it was Sweden where Yari Matti put it on the top step of the podium, scored five points in the power stage to boot as well. How satisfying was that as a team to see? Yeah, I think I think there was um, there was three defining moments of, of that kind of period. The first one was when um, the car which we designed uh, in a computer and only ever seen it in 3D and then... Uh, parts were coming off of machines and then coming to the workshop and all these things that we'd only ever seen in 3D were assembled into a car and then somebody got in it and drove it out the workshop and it, everything was working. Uh, I think that was the, I mean, it sounds simple, but if you if you imagine we only had the one chance, so if if yeah. something was really fundamentally not working on that day, then it was going to be a really big problem. So... Um, that was really the first moment I think it, uh, watching that car driving for the first time it sounds like a small thing, but when you've only ever seen it in a computer as uh, pixels, and then and then the next thing it's 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 driving full speed on the stage. It's quite imp- impressive. How far into the project did that happen? So th- uh, that was in um, the springtime of 2016. <sighs> okay. Yeah, so it was it was uh, six months from blank paper to driving. Wow, that is an insane period of time in terms of turnaround to a vehicle actually going at full pelt on a stage. Yeah, 
so that that was that was really um, like a really high day for it for everyone to see that happening um, and and to not have any fundamental problems on that first day that something really important and takes a long time to make didn't fit so uh, but then uh, from that day we realized right, okay now's the next challenge we've got to make this thing fast now mm-hmm. so so um, yeah then I going to Monte Carlo um, before Monte Carlo, we were packing. Uh, we we packed the truck at the last possible second. The those cars we were we were in the workshop um, without going home for more than two days to be ready for that. So that's the kind of uh, maybe perspective on on what Monte Carlo was. And then uh, obviously Yari Matti was second in Monte Carlo, which was almost bigger than the win at that time. Yeah. Absolutely, because Monte, it's A, it's the first rally, and B, it's potentially the most challenging event of the year. And there yeah, you are in second position. That's quite incredible. And there, there was some there was some really um, nice moments in the build-up to that because, um, I mean, I'd had my, my, my head completely deep in the car, the same as all the the other engineers and technicians had so we knew we knew everything about the car side and we were but a, a team is much more than just the car um, we have to have the logistics and we have to have the all the equipment on site to do the servicing efficiently and all and all those things and there'd been other teams working on all those elements that needed to come together in monte carlo and we just hadn't had the time to more than absolutely necessary to explain, you know, what do we need to service the car and so on, make some lists. We hadn't seen each other's work. And on this day, it all came together and the logistics side had built up this incredible uh, service area, which had all the equipment that we'd requested ready to use and work. And we'd seen nothing of it until the moment we, we pulled up. And on the other side, the logistics side had had not really seen the full rally car finished in its livery, ready to go. And we pulled it out of the truck and parked it in there. And all these elements came together. And uh, I think that was a a pretty important moment for the team. Yeah, I, I think it must have been because everyone in, in every single department is working flat out to make sure everything is ready. And, you know, plus the fact that, you know, you, you have to do all that from the sporting side, from the logistics side. You also have another element in that, you know, there are guests, there are potentially VIP guests, important people, sponsors coming to watch your first event. And as you say, you've literally just seen things for the first time when you've rocked up. Not only that, all the eyes of the rallying world are then on you, waiting to see if you're going to fail or succeed. I I can't even begin begin to imagine what that feels like, you know, going into Rally Monte Carlo weekend. Yeah, it was um, yeah because at, at that time, although everything was on the ground ready to go, in the way that the WRC does testing, we we have no reference really to to what everyone else has done. So we we were happy with what we had done with the car, and we were like confidence, maybe not the right word, but we knew we'd done our best. So um, we were happy from that point of view, but to know exactly where everyone else was, we didn't know when the first stage times came in, um, was it going to be, let's say disappointing or not. But um, yeah, we were obviously, 
I think it was quite interesting from a technical point of view that four different teams went away and made a car to this regulation and we all turned up and then they're all basically the same pace. Yeah, that that blew me away. And I think a lot of people as well, it just goes to show how, you know, how technically advanced you all are, but how how it could be like that, how you could all be so close with a brand new car. And especially for you guys coming in with kind of no basis of comparison. Yeah, it's, and I think the the other thing is um, that we didn't all do it in the same way. Um, I, I, everyone's quite secretive about what they're doing, and and we. No, are we, you secretive? No, you wouldn't say, no. yeah. We 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 pulled a few tricks during the um, during the development time, and never really showed the finished car at any time. So um, we had all different body parts and disguises and things that we were running in the test so no one really saw that car that was going to be in Monte Carlo in full full detail until Monte Carlo and it, it, the same for everyone else um, we didn't know exactly what everyone else was going to have so then we turned up and and everyone else unloaded their equipment and I know everyone was sort of walking around and looking to see what's everyone done and uh, yeah it was the cars were the same pace but not everyone had gone about it in the same way so right now you are technical director of the team. So when you look back to, you know, your M Sport days, your decision to to leave there because you couldn't move further forward effectively within the team, taking that sideward step and now to where you are now, is this where you want to be? Is this this is the career for Tom Fowler now? Yeah, the this is uh the giddy heights. I... I, it's it's difficult to see it that way. That's not really how I see it. I mean, it's um, I I think I like I like to be involved in in all the different aspects of the car. And we um, in our in our engineering and design team, we're very lucky to have uh, exceptional exceptional people who who do really good work in in different areas where. Um, they do a much better job than I would do, but I, it's to see what they're doing and to be able to give something to them from my experience mm. of the rallies, um, because you learn so much um, from being at the events and being at so many events over so many years um, that to be able to give that information to an aerodynamicist or uh, to a, a specialist in some other area um, and really be able to explain to them what what can happen in a rally scenario and and really make it rally orientated yeah. to to all those different people is it's it's the part of my job which i which i enjoy the most is to to really work with all those different experience experienced people and learn from them and and hopefully be able to give them some information too i mean you, you talk about experience and you obviously have a, a huge amount under your belt over the years. And, and we go to, sometimes we will go to the same events every single year, but due to the wonderful nature of our sport, you know, things change, weather changes things. So many different factors change elements of this, that and the other. Is that something that kind of fuels your love of what we do because it's constantly changing or it, the environment let's say would have different effects from a technical aspect 
yeah, I I think that's that's what um, really took my interest in in the beginning is is that there's there's so much variety to it and um, to really you know take a an ordinary uh, road going car and redesign it to be able to do what a world rally car does is is really something incredible you know you you shouldn't be able to drive uh at these speeds on these kind of roads all around the world it's it it shouldn't be possible but that's what we have to do is make it possible and um to just be limited to a certain number of tracks or one surface or something like that it for me that's doesn't hold so much interest so that's what really got me started to be interested in it um and what holds my interest today We've been looking back at various scenarios on WRC.com in the past month for for the Tech Month feature. And one of the the things that we were looking at was that time in Rally Turkey where both Sebastian Ogier, Thierry Neuville damaged their suspensions. Thierry couldn't make it back to service, but Ogier managed to to put in a fixed set and fastest time on the next stage and then, of course, bin it on the next stage out of service. But in terms of those dramas at the side of the roads, when we were sometimes and we're kind of we're very lucky now with all live to get a bird's eye view of what's going on sometimes, thanks to the helicopters. In those type of scenarios, when we see the drivers on the phone back to base, back to you guys, is there anything in your memory or a wild scenario or a really tough challenge that you could tell me about from that perspective? uh those those moments are uh, they're incredibly stressful but uh, also afterwards if you get it, if you make a success of it, it can be quite satisfying so uh, there's we we don't like those to happen but un- inevitably in this sport they do uh i think um i've been involved in those kind of situations quite many times but uh, i think the most the one it's actually quite recent but it was um when uh, actually takamoto became stuck on the start line i don't know if you uh, oh yes and yeah. uh it uh it just so happened uh, that uh, my english communication with uh, with with dan in the co-driver side would was going to be possibly the most effective way to get the information to them and uh we we went through all kinds of scenarios and the, the reason i bring up this one is because it was very interesting from a technical and a sporting side because mm. we had to work very quickly to solve a technical problem to get the car moving but at the same time the car was on the start line and hadn't actually started the stage which has sporting implications at the same time yeah. so uh, the team was working from a sporting and a technical side to come to some solution that would allow him to start the stage uh, both technically and without infringing the uh, the regulations from a sporting side so um this is uh this one was quite interesting in in that perspective but um and also because it was happening kind of in the stage so these ones are often the most exciting <laughs> yeah i mean it, it it certainly puts pressure on you guys and as you said they're, they're stressful situations which you never want to be in but inevitably they are going to pop up from time to time you know how much do you school your drivers co-drivers about the car about potential scenarios yeah we um we have uh 
training sessions with them uh, mostly usually in the start of the season they the, the drivers come and and get the the overalls on and work with a mechanic for for a day or two um, going through mostly the things which they which they could do or have to do um, and from a, either from a routine point of view or from an emergency fixed point of view and we have the equipment inside the car which is able to make certain certain fixes for problems that we know can occur because of rally situations mm. so they they have a routine um, that they know of that they're trained in for those things but um the sport being like it is un- unfortunately it's it's always the weird ones that catch you out so it's difficult to train them for every eventuality yeah, well, we do see some pretty random things happening. Let's let's be honest. But that that in a way is the beauty of it as well. And for us, storytelling it it's it it all adds to it. Um, and to keep you then on your toes, you know, a, a change in the regulations is is coming up again, which is still not not altogether crystal clear. What what kind of processes are you going through right now with that? Yeah, so um, as a result of this um, global situation, the um, the work to do the regulations for for 2022 uh, was accelerated uh, in in terms of the intensity of meetings uh, all held online, obviously with the FIA. So the teams and the FIA are working together with a weekly meeting or uh, even sometimes bi-weekly. Uh, it depends on on how how we're getting on but um we are we're working through what we need to do to to introduce hybrid uh technology to to wrc in 2022 which is which is the target and um so those regulations are in the draft stage at the moment and um hopefully a bit sooner uh than than it would have been if we were all doing rallies at the moment, we'll have the information to get really started on on the proper design work. How does that motivate you in terms of, from a technical aspect, creating different machinery effectively? Yeah, it's it's always interesting to do a totally new totally new car. Um, on on the other hand, it's it's uh, also a lot of um, a lot of pressure because uh, now from from our point of view, we are in a different scenario to we've we've been in before. In 2016, we were uh, following the new regulations and building the new regulations with the FIA and developing our car, but we didn't have a rally team at that moment. Um, okay, it's a little bit similar now because of coronavirus, but mm-hmm. hopefully that's rectified soon and we'll be in a situation where we are um, developing a regulation developing a new car and running a rally team and a test program all at the same time so it's new times for us in terms of how we split our workload and it's uh it's exciting you referenced testing there i know the team has been testing this week how has that been going so far uh it's so far it's been going going very well i personally i haven't been in attendance at the test because i have been in an fia meeting today um, but uh, I have been taking the information from our engineers on site, and um, Calais was driving yesterday and, and did a, uh, a very good day. He was happy, um, and Seb 
driving today. Um, we have a few secret developments, obviously, that we won't talk about, uh, as you oh, know. Oh, exciting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's a little bit strange to do a Finland test without a Finland rally. But in, in our yeah. situation at the moment, it, it makes sense because with our three drivers all being new to the car this season, they uh, they haven't actually driven our um, full specification Finland setup um, really before in the proper condition ready for Rally Finland. Um, so the purpose of the test was really to to show them what is the Finland car in advance of of the future, mm-hmm. and and also to try to fine tune the secret developments. Uh, could you tell us what area of the car the secret developments are on? A little bit of everything. Oh, jeez. You're learning from drivers way too quickly, Tom Fowler. What's it like having um, Seb Ogier as part of the team? Uh, it's 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 been really nice so far. Um, uh, so far, hope, not meaning it's not going to be in the future, I hope. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it, um, I think... I think I've said this some somewhere before, and it's maybe been read, but so it's not so so much of a problem to talk about. But uh, I think there was some nervousness in the team in the beginning because uh, when you take a, a driver of his caliber in, into the team, you you only ever know what was the stories from from other people, yeah. um, and you haven't experienced it yourself. And um, we we were confident in the work that we'd done with our other drivers in the past, but you never know um, when someone with Seb's experience. Uh, and drive comes to the team. Is he gonna? Is he gonna like the car that we've developed? Yeah, is, it, is, it, is it gonna? Is it gonna suit him? Um, and that's a pressure. And on top of that, um, obviously the team operates in a certain way, um, not just from a technical point of view, but from from everything. So um, we have to do a, everything from reconnaissance through to how the engineers communicate and how we service the car and all these different things it's all new for him and it's new for us and I think everyone was a little bit nervous you know this is the top guy are we are we doing things the way that he's gonna like and um we were we've been very happy um to work with him and he seems happy with us so we're um it's going well so far. Well, it's kind of nice to know that you were nervous in a way because I think anyone would be really. I mean, you talk about his calibre. He is a six-time champion and he's achieved so much and the work ethic is incredible from both him and Julian. But yeah, from what we've seen previously with him in teams, especially with M-Sport, he, he kind of slotted in perfectly there and he seems to have done exactly the same with you guys. Yeah, Um I think I think it was just that um, it wasn't anything to do with him, the person that made us nervous. It was more him, the six times world champion, and maybe that was the wrong way to look at it, um, because everyone's a person at the end of the day. But uh, um, yeah, we we were really hoping that he would he would like our product in terms of the car, and we were we were pretty lucky with. Um, with him and uh, and Calais and and Elfin together, that they all slotted into the car technically quite easily without uh, us having to make too many fundamental changes to to how we developed the car. So that eased the pressure immediately, and um, and then the results came. Um, I think I think uh, Seb had a 
a very good start to the season before all this stuff happened. Uh, maybe a lot of people are asking questions about why he wasn't winning in Monte Carlo and these kind of things. But when you look at the way that he does his championships, he he's very calculated. And mm. if you go if you go off in Monte Carlo, then you 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 put yourself on completely the wrong foot at the start. So he was new to the car, he was new to the team, and he did the Monte Carlo that he needed to to make sure that he would he had the possibility to be the champion at the end. And yeah, I think very clever in that way that he works and and the whole team around him have supported him in that I, I i'm imagining now tom you know we're in a meeting at toyota you are leading the meeting as the technical director and you've got the drivers there and they want this they want that they want that change they want this changed are you a bit of a, a tough guy in terms of putting the way things should be done forward because drivers can ask maybe too much or push things too far how strict are you i guess is what i'm asking um i think in the at the actual at the actual time we in these kind of meetings we we always like to listen to what uh, to what they have what the drivers have to say and uh, take a note of all the possible possible improvements that might make their life easier mm. um there is um, I think everyone knows quite often requests that come for things that may not be, um, let's say, wholly beneficial to the entire team at that moment. I love the so, vagueness of that statement. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, at the end end of the day, somebody has to make a decision about are we are we going to put our effort or time and money in into these changes or modifications, and that can be maybe the the more difficult side of the job is that you can't make everyone happy all of the time, but we try to keep it balanced and, and listen and explain in a polite way uh, why, why we may or may not do um, what, what's been requested. So try not to be the tough guy, but more uh, analyzing and making sure that we make the right decision. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in these meetings. Oh, one technical thing I'd like to request actually, Tom, if that's okay. Okay. Um, when your car finishes a stage, yeah, um, and the drivers, I know what you're going to say. Uh, yeah, I know you know what I'm going to say because you hear me moan about it on live all the time. <laughs> uh, we lose the audio of them and we can't hear them chatting anymore from the flying finish to the stop control, which, quite frankly, is unfair to our global audience who would love to hear what they've got to say. Doesn't happen on any other cars, only the Toyota. Why is that? Um, I think you know why that is. <laughs> it's because you've made that happen. Absolutely, yes. But th- this is remarkably unfair. And now that everyone knows that you've admitted to the fact that you've made this happen, I'm sure you'll get lots of people protesting about it. It's great to hear them chat, though, but you obviously don't want them to reveal what's gone on in the car or what potentially could be wrong. No, I think I think um, the... Uh... In that few seconds where they've just finished the stage, um, not all drivers, but some drivers might have the tendency to say something either from a technical perspective or a personal perspective, which the team or themselves may not want to reveal, but in the heat of the moment they reveal. And that's uh, that's where your job and my job differs quite a lot because it's it's your job to emphasize those those details and make a story out of it and it's my job to try to keep those a little bit secret so unfortunately um 
we have different agendas, but I have the switch. <laughs> you you have the switch. You do. Um, and I, you know, it's nothing I can sneak into the Aris with a screwdriver and sort myself, unfortunately. So I'll just have to go on moaning about it. I've written down your words that you said at the start, which were motivated, passionate, and technical. I'm adding highly secretive to those words. <laughs> I wish I wish we could hear the drivers. That's my only complaint, Tom. Uh, hopefully we are going to see rallying kick off again very soon. Um, but like you said, it, it is a really busy period for you now anyway. Um, but hopefully in the next few months, we should be, fingers crossed, up and running again. Yeah, uh, it, I think we all need it um, from from every side of, of WRC and motorsport in general to, to get back up and running. Obviously, we have to do it in a responsible way but um yeah it's for the for the team it's it's difficult not to have that competition element because if you if you decide to dedicate your life to be in a world rally team uh, usually it's because you you want you want to drive from the competition side and the excitement of of that kind of career yeah. so um, I know everyone's missing that side of it from the from the drivers all the way down to to everybody in the team. So we we need it back and um, we need to we need to win this championship for uh, for one of our drivers and our team. So it, we want it back. Of course you do, and so do we all. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for for sharing so much of yourself with me on this podcast. I look forward to seeing you very very soon. Thank you very much. For more great WRC content, head to WRC Plus. For thousands of hours of archive footage, from end of season reviews and onboards, to features on some of the legends of WRC. That is WRCplus.com.